Thank you for choosing the Abide College Ministry Podcast. If this is your first time listening, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message inspires and challenges you. Now here's a message from one of our leaders, Blake Fine. So, tonight we've been talking about errors. We are all errors. And last week we want to kind of talk about it's not really, it doesn't really matter where you're going. It's more about what you're taking with you and what you're carrying. And so, what we talked about last week was that we're carrying the name of Jesus out into the world. And that should be our life mission, our life goal. And as an arrow, when we're aiming, we're carrying the name of Jesus. So, tonight I want to kind of talk about something a little different. It's the same concept, but I want to focus in on the right now. What are we called to right now? When I, um, so I'm from Cordell, Georgia. And if you don't know where Cordell, Georgia is at, I would not be surprised because it's a tiny little town about an hour south of Macon, an hour and a half north of Valdez, so somewhere around that area. There's about 20,000 people in the town. It's not big at all, um, and there's not much to it. And so in 2013, I graduated from high school, and my friends started to go off to college. I had friends going to Georgia, Southern, UGA, uh, Middle Georgia, and it was great to see my friends begin this new chapter in their life. But for me, I was staying at home. And part of me was kind of discontent with this and not really happy about it, but I didn't understand why, why do I have to stay here? Like, I've been here my whole life. I want something new. I mean, there was just little financial things that caused that to happen and just things like that. And so I got saved around 17. I grew up in church. I, you know, I did the church thing, but I never really took it seriously. So around 17, I got saved. I accepted the Lord as my Savior. And I was really involved with my youth group. I was involved with the church that I went to. Um, but in this time period where my friends went off, they would go off to school. And over Thanksgiving and Christmas break, they would come back and, and we would share in the activities that they began in college, which is drinking and all that stuff, kids I do. Um, and so I began to kind of live like what you could say or call a double life. So like I would serve in the church, I'd help out, but then when my friends came home, I'd get plastered out of my mind. Not, not good. Not a good look. And I think part of it, the reason I did that was because I was so discontent, not happy with where I was at, and I was not trusting the plan that God had for me right now. And so I can remember, like, things had to change. And the night that it really began to kind of strike me, that things have to change for me, I, I remember we were out and we were doing what we always did, getting drunk, and then the next morning I remember I told the, um, the children's pastor at my church, I said, I'm going to uh, come next morning and help you all with vacation Bible school. And so when you drink all night to about 3 a.m. and you're not giving your body enough time to let it get out of your system, you're still going to be drunk when you wake up the next morning. And so if you want to feel really stupid, go to church, tipsy, and help out with vacation Bible school. Yeah. Stupid, right? My problem was I was not trusting where God had me. My problem was that I was disobedient to the plan that God had for me, and I was disobedient to where he had me at that time. And so I realized that that morning when I was there, and I just realized, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Something has to change. So I went to the children's pastor, and I talked to him. I said, I need some guidance. I need to 
figure out what I'm going to do. Because I knew that I wanted to go into ministry. I knew I wanted to work in church. I knew that was where God was calling me to. But I didn't really know where I was going to go after I got done in Cordell. And so while I was in Cordell, I realized God has me here for a purpose. There's a reason for me to be here. And it's to invest in people and show other people who Christ is. And so what I tried to do, I would, I would call youth pastors in the town and say, hey, can I come share my testimony? You know, I just want to talk and share and, and help others see who Christ is. And, and by the time I left, and this is not to like toot my own horn or say I've done anything good or anything like that, but I was able to speak to all the youth groups in Cordill by the time I left. But this is all to say that it took me being disobedient to understand that I had to be obedient to where God had me. And I think a lot of times God will use circumstances and things like that to draw us back to him and bring us back to obedience to him. So like I said, as we're talking about this idea of we're all heroes, there are targets in front of us, and these targets are the targets of right now. The targets off in the distance oftentimes are distractions, and the targets that are off will sometimes distract you from what God's calling you to do right now. So for some of us, you know, we're college students. We're waiting to the next chapter of our life. But this past week, I began to fill out uh, graduate applications for seminaries. That's kind of scary. It's kind of like something I don't really want to think about. But the thing is, I cannot allow myself to become distracted of going there and miss out on what's called I'm being called to right now. The next chapter in your life cannot be a distraction from the right now. God has you in Rome, Georgia for a purpose. And sometimes I know it's easy to get caught and say, I'm really just ready to get out of school. But what if you miss out on what God's calling you to do by that statement? So I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and verses 3 through 6. And in, in Philippians, Paul and uh, Timothy, they're writing to the church in Philippi. They're just sending encouragement. They're, they're teaching on how to be in unity in Christ and how to be a Christ-like person. And so, in the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, he says, in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this is where I really want to focus in on tonight. And I am sure of this, that he, that being Christ, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In the NIV it says, and I am confident in this. I kind of like that translation better, but basically he's, he's confident that Christ will bring the plan of your life to completion. So I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your son. We thank you for giving us life, Lord. I pray tonight, God, that my words would be yours. It would be a reflection of who you are and not who I am. Jesus, you are so good to us. And it's in these things, in these things we pray in your name. So the first thing that I want to kind of focus in on as a first one is this. Be confident. If you want to write that down, you can. Be confident. You're going to want those notes when you get to heaven because they're going to ask for them. So write this down. Be confident. So what are we going to be confident in? The first thing is this. We must be confident in a God that is greater than we are. We must be confident in who God is. We must be confident in the fact that God is holy, God is righteous, 
God is a God that cares about you. God is a God that wants to be in a relationship with you. God is a God that is reaching out to you. God is a good, true Father. You must be confident in who God is. The second is this. A good God cares about his children. A good Father cares about his children. Or his children. And most of the time, a father, a parent, likes to help their child seek after the things they want to do. Help them with the plan of their life. We must secondly be confident in the plan that God has for us. And the plan sometimes doesn't seem like it's going the way we want it to, or, or things don't seem very good. But within the plan, there is also a third thing that we must be confident in, and that's the process. We must be confident in the process of the plan. Anything that good has a process. One of my favorite things is, I'm a huge Alabama fan. And hit me if you want, I only care. But I'm a huge Alabama fan. There's this thing that Nick Saban says all the time. It's called trust the process. That there's a process to something that's going to come about that's good. And so for our lives, there's going to be a process of your life that God has for you. And what does that mean? In the process, God is going to use you in different ways. In the process, God is going to let you go through seasons of life that are hard, that are good, that are bad, that are surprising, that are joyful, that are painful. There are going to be a number of different seasons of life that you go through. And this is all part of the process that God has in the plan. We must be confident in God and who He is. We must then be confident in the plan that He has and then be confident in the process of the plan. This past week, I was reading up on diamonds. I mean, you know, they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. And Valentine's Day is coming up, so if any of you guys have a girlfriend, you're coming. I know some of these girls want hundred inches of diamonds. So, when I was reading about diamonds, right? So, diamonds are people like, we have a process of diamonds. Right, and so, for these people that want a diamond from hundred, I'm going to save you some money, honey. Right? Alright, so the process of creating a diamond it's a pretty interesting process. The first is this. To get a diamond, you have to bury it, bury some carbon dioxide. They say that it comes from coal, but it's really carbon dioxide. So you bury carbon dioxide 100 miles into the earth. Hunter, you might want to write this down. You're going to bury carbon dioxide 100 miles into the earth. The second is this. You're going to heat it about to 2200 degrees. If you don't know that, it's very, very hot. The third is this. You're going to have to squeeze it under pressure of 725,000 pounds per square inch. And then you have to quickly rush it back towards the Earth's surface so it can cool. And then you're going to have to wait a couple million years. Oh. Depending on how you believe the Earth is. <laughs> and then, you know, if you want to take the cheap route, Hunter, this is, this is, you can get synthetic diamonds. And, and synthetic diamonds are kind of cool. You can look at them. Um, but from kind of a distance, they look a lot like a diamond, but they're not the same. You see, a synthetic diamond is made in a lab, made by humans. And what's interesting about this is when I was reading this, it kind of came to my mind. What makes the diamond so valuable is the process that it went through. What makes the diamond so valuable is the process that it went through, that it was hard, there was pressure, things got heated, and they got deeper than it probably wanted to be sometimes. But synthetic diamonds are man-made. And when you examine them up close, they're not as good. But when you examine the diamond, there's something beautiful about it because of the process that it went through. 
See, the process that you have going for you is going to be not as good if you try and do it yourself. It's going to be like these synthetic diamonds that aren't as valuable and aren't as nice when you try to have your own plan. But when we trust in God's plan, when we trust in the process that he has for our life, it's going to be a lot more valuable, much like a diamond. So, think about that. Are you trying to do things on your own? Are you trying to make a plan for yourself? Or are you going to let God put you through a process that's going to play out his plan? See, the process of the plan God has for you may be difficult, it may take more time, but I can promise you it has more value than the cheaper and easier plan you may have. And the second statement is this, bring it to completion. In Philippians, we say he's going to bring it to completion. See, God will bring the plan he has for you to completion. Whether it's good or bad. You know, what's happened within Christianity, I think, is that a lot of times we believe that having salvation is going to make our life easier. That's not the case. There are plenty of people in this book that died, but... The plan was brought to completion because of their salvation in Jesus Christ, not by life on earth. See, God will bring the plan of your life to completion when you trust who he is, the plan, and the process. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, it begins with um, Jacob or Israel. In Jacob... Um, is, so Jacob had 12 sons, and what we understand from the, the Bible and Jewish history is that the 12 tribes of Israel come from the line of Jacob. And so Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, and so we know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. That's why they call him the Lion of Judah. We didn't know that from fact. And so in this story, remember that. It's very important to remember that in, because of Judah, Jesus came from that. All right, so it begins, Jacob is a young boy, 17 years old, and his father loves him more than the rest. And so he loves him so much that he creates and makes a handmade coat for him. And if you know me, I really like clothes, so I can relate to Jacob or Joseph in this, and I'm like, that's pretty cool. His father would make him a coat of many, many colors. And so Joseph, he's 17 years old, and he is a dreamer, literally. He has dreams. And so his brothers don't watch him very much because their father loves him more than the rest. And I think if any of you have siblings or whatever, if your father was to love your sibling more than he loved you, it would be kind of disappointing, kind of aggravating. So you can kind of understand the irritation from the brothers here. And so Joseph has dreams. So the first dream that Joseph has, and he tells his brothers, is this. So they're out in the field gathering wheat, and then there's sheaves, a sheave of wheat. And so the sheaves of wheat, there's 12 of them, and he says, my sheave was standing upright taller than y'all's, and y'all's bowed down to me. So his brothers didn't like that very much because it made it seem like his brothers were going to bow down to Joseph, the youngest of the brothers. And the second dream was this, and Joseph went and told his, his dad, his mother, his brothers this dream also. And the dream was, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now these are some pretty wild dreams to be having, to be thinking that you're going to be so great one day that the sun, the moon, and the stars would bow down to you. I can only imagine, like, what if I were to go to my mom and say, Mom, guess what? Everything's going to bow down to me. Um, and so 
Joseph's story. So Joseph, he has these dreams, and he tells them to his family and his father, and says, are you saying that you're going to reign over us? And as the story continues, Joseph is um, with his father one day, and his father asks him, he says, I need you to go out to Shechem and find your brothers and report back to me a good word of what they're doing out in the fields. And so he goes out to the fields, and he sees a man in the distance, and he comes up to the man, and he can't find his brothers. And the man says, well, they have gone off to Dothan. And so as uh, Joseph continues his trek on the Dothan, he see, his brothers see him off in the distance, and they're coming. And he, um, his brothers began to plot, and they're going to kill him. And so as they begin to plot and kill him, um, uh, Reuben, Reuben says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this hole over here that has no water in it and leave him there. But in Reuben's mind, he was going to come back and save his brothers, and then everything would kind of smooth out and make things better. Um, and Judah was the one that wanted to kill him. And so, as Joseph comes up, they throw him in the hole, and then Reuben goes, and he does something, he doesn't exactly say, but he's separated from his brothers at a point in time, and then, so Judah then says, what profit are we going to get from killing him? Let's sell him into slavery. And so they sell him into slavery, and then Reuben comes back and he says, what have you done with our brother? How are we going to explain this to our father? So they take that beautiful coat, and they rip it up, and they dip it in blood, and they go to their father and say, he's been eaten by wolves, wild animals, something like that. And so Joseph is sold into slavery, and he goes into the service of Potiphar, who is a chief um, to Pharaoh. And so as he begins to work for Pharaoh, God blesses him and allows him to be the leader of the whole household, and the only person higher than him was Potiphar. So we see that Joseph is put in a leadership position way ahead of what's to come. So Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph. He was a very handsome man, very relatable. Um, and so he's a very handsome man, and he says, his wife comes to him and says, lay with me, have sex with me. And she, he's like, no, I can't do that. I get out of here. And so she goes to Potiphar and lies and says they did it anyways. And so Potiphar is very, very angry, and he throws him into prison. And so he goes to prison, and then God blesses him again, and he places him in another leadership position. He is ahead over all the prisoners in the jail. And so two, two prisoners come to him, the chief. Cupbearer of Pharaoh, and then the and the babies. They come in and say, "We have to, we've had two dreams. We need you to interpret them." And the first dream was basically that the cupbearer was going to be taken back in the service of Pharaoh, and the baker was going to get his head cut off. I would hate to have to tell someone that. Um, and so he tells them these. He interprets his dreams right where he's at in jail, using the gifts that God has given him. And so the story goes on, and he tells the, the cupbearer, he says, don't forget about me. Two years go by, and he forgot about him. Pharaoh had dreams now, so Pharaoh's having some dreams, and the cupbearer remembers that Joseph can interpret dreams two years later. A lot of help. So two years later, he comes to him, Pharaoh, and says, I remember him in jail. There was a guy that can interpret dreams. And so he brings Joseph up out of jail, and he says to him, Pharaoh says to him, I need you to interpret dreams. And so the gist of the dreams is that there is going to be seven years of good years and seven years of famine. And so Joseph is able to interpret these dreams correctly to Pharaoh, and then he, is allowed, he places him in the head of all of Egypt. So we see Joseph become a leader in the house of Potiphar, a leader in jail, and now he's the head of all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh. It's a pretty impressive story, and I think it just shows the faithfulness of Joseph. And I believe we can really relate to this. So the first point I want to state 
is this, and it's not going to be up there, so you'll have to write this down. Your preparation will come way before your placement. God's preparation for you will come way before where he places you. See, we see Joseph is placed into the household of Potiphar, and he is made a leader. God is preparing him for something greater that is to come, something that's going to be in the distant future. But Joseph was called to be obedient where he was at. Your preparation will come way before your placement. And see, the preparation is very important. As we have some, some wax girls in here, y'all won y'all won y'all's first two games, and y'all had a lot of practice leading up to that. Um, and so y'all been preparing for those games, and it's, been, it's reflected well. And so the preparation that God has for our lives is just as important. See, when we're talking about errors, I was talking to Dr. Kellett a few weeks ago, and if you don't know Dr. Kellett, he's the head of the Christian Studies Department at Story University. And he was telling me, he likes a bow hunt, and he was saying, you know, Blake, when you are beginning to learn how to shoot a bow, somebody will shoot bows, and you know you can't just go out and shoot a 60-yard target right off the bat. You have to practice. You have to learn your technique correctly, and you have to be strong enough to do it. And so, the same thing goes for our life. What God is calling us to in the future, we may not be ready for. We may not be strong enough, and we may not be mentally strong enough. God is calling us to something greater, maybe. But he's preparing for us right now. So your preparation will come way before your placement. The second is this. God's preparation of you may call for your obedience to him. Calling you to say no to the world and yes to him. Now think about this. So Joseph is in a good place. He's in a household. He has everything he wants. The only person that's ahead of him is Potiphar. And a woman comes in and says, have sex with me. And he says, no. You know, for a lot of guys, that's probably a hard thing to do. And Joseph, he could have said yes, and no one would have known about it. Nobody would have cared, probably, if Potiphar didn't find out. But he said no, and the result was him being thrown into jail. See, sometimes you're going to have to say no to certain things, and it's not going to work out the way you want it to. But in your obedience to God, you'll see the preparation for your place. See, what and where is God calling you to now? What is he preparing you for in the distant future? What is he using right now to prepare you for? I think there are things that we're all being prepared for. See, some of us are going to be doctors. Some of us are going to be lawyers. Some of us are going to speak for those who can't speak. Some of us are going to create and start orphanages. Some of us are going to go on missions. Some of us are going to be just a simple mailman. But God is preparing us for that right now. And it's important that we trust that preparation. So here's the thing that I want you to understand. God does have a plan for your life. But if you are not obedient to him, and if you are living in disobedience and in sin, you can miss out on the plan that God has for you. You can, you can go right by you. And see, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm a Christian. God has a plan for me. You can miss out on it. I promise you. For that first year of my, my life in Cordillo, my first year of college, I missed out on what God had for me then because I was not obedient to him. As we continue, the second point is this. God, I want you to write this one down. God has called you to the right now, not the I will win. God has called you to right now, not I will win. See, Joseph was always serving where he was at. We see that these two men in prison, he gets thrown into prison, and these two men come to him 
let's say, interpret dreams. Joseph knew that he had dreams in his past, and he probably knew that he could interpret dreams. And so Joseph, he doesn't say, I'm going to use the gifts that God has given me when I get out of prison. He says, I'm going to use the gifts that God has given me right now while I'm in prison. See, a lot of us think that when we get our degree, when we get a job, when we make a team, when we do a number of things, that's when we're going to start glorifying God. That's when we're going to start doing good things. But that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to what's right in front of us. God has called us to right now. God has not called us to the I will win. And see, God is not looking for us to do everything. God doesn't need you to do everything. See, God is God. He doesn't need you. He calls for your obedience as a child of his. See, he's not calling us to do everything, but he is looking for us to do something, and usually it's right in front of us. Don't miss out on what's right in front of you by becoming caught up of what you will do. Do it now. You want to lead people to Christ? Do it now. You want to change the world? Do it now. I'm a firm believer that every person in here can change the world. You see, you can change your world. The world that you are a part of right now is your world. Change it. No one's stopping you but yourself. And I have to tell myself that all the time. I get caught up in, I'm going to get my degree, and then I'm going to go to seminary, then I'm going to start a church. God's calling me to lead people now. I have to be obedient to that now. See, are you saying to God, I will win? Are you saying to God, okay, I will win? And what gifts does God want you to use in order to glorify Him when you're there? God has given everyone in here special and unique gifts. For some of us, it's sports. For some of us, music. For some of us, it's speaking. For some of us, it's just loving people. Some people are great listeners, and that's a gift. Sometimes I suck at listening. I'm the type of person that can't listen. I always want to try and find a solution. That doesn't work. And so, for some people, some gifts are just different. But God has given you these unique gifts to use them right now in Rome, Georgia. And wherever you're at, Barry, Georgia, Holland, Shorter, or not in school at all, God has called you to lead people where you're at. And at the end of the story, this is my, like, if you don't get anything out of this point, this is the main point that I want to make. The one common target. If you miss out on all the targets in your life, if you miss out on everything that you want to do, the one common target is to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. There's no other target. If you miss all the other targets, if they're not good, that one is right here. You don't even need a bow. You can just stick it in there. God has called us to glorify him right where we're at. Joseph, in every circumstance, he was in glorified God right where he was at. And pointed back to God and all that. We see in the first instance when Potiphar's wife comes to him and she says, Lay with me, he says, No one is greater in this house than me. I am, nor has he kept me back from anything referring to Potiphar. He said, But you. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He points back to God and glorifies God by saying no to sin. The next is this. When the first uh, interpretation of dreams in the prison comes about, they come to him and say, interpret dreams to us. And he says, they said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do interpretations not belong to God? Tell them to me. He points back to God right where he's at. 
as it goes on to Pharaoh, this is the king of basically the world. If you don't know much about history, Egypt was one of the greatest empires of all time. And Pharaoh is the king of the world, basically. And he says to Joseph, he says, he answers Pharaoh and says, it is not me that will return your dreams. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then in verse 28 it says, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. See, Joseph was confident that he was called to glorify God where he's at. And then in this statement right here, he's confident that God has the plan, not himself. And then he even glorifies God as a father. We see later on, after he's the, the head of Israel, or the head of Egypt, sorry, he goes on and he says, he says, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath and Manasseh. And so he named uh, the firstborn. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, and he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's work. And my mistake, the name of the second was Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, God was glorified in everything that Joseph did. He was pointed back to in everything that Joseph did. My prayer and my hope is that in everything that you do, that you don't miss out on what God's calling you to right now. God wants you to glorify Him right now. Um, and so the last story I kind of want to talk about, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, it's in Acts chapter 16. And so Paul and Silas are in prison. A lot of guys are in prison in the Bible, at least. They're in prison. And it says they're praying and singing out hymns to God. And the jailers were, the jailer and the prisoners were listening. And as they're singing out to God, an earthquake comes, and it releases the doors and opens the doors, and everyone's able to be set free. The jailer comes out, and he, brings, he draws his sword as he's about to kill himself, because he knew that if these prisoners were gone, that he would be killed. And Paul and Silas call out, and they say, no, don't kill yourself. We are all still here. We are all still here. What's interesting about that is those prisoners that were not Paul and Silas had no reason to stay there. And as they're calling out to God and they're praying to God, I believe that these prisoners were drawn to Paul and Silas. I believe they were drawn to them because they knew that they had something that was greater, something that was better, something that was good. And the jailer sees this, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, and he said, call out to Jesus, and you will be saved. And then the jailer, he takes them to his house, and they begin to enjoy a meal, and they go to the table, and they eat a meal, and it says, the jailer's whole household was saved. You see, there's power in one person. God has called us to the right now, but God may have just called you also to one person. There may be one person in your life that God is calling you to right now, and you may never ever get another opportunity to glorify Him by bringing them to Him for future. Who is that one person? It may be a sister in your sorority. It may be a teammate. It may be a friend. It may be a family member. For me, it's my dad. My dad's not saved. He's getting older. But I'm continually trying. And if he dies, oh well, he doesn't accept the Lord, I can't look back on that and say I didn't try. Because I cannot miss out on the target that's right in front of me. And there are people at Shorter that I know need the Lord. There are people at Barry that I know need the Lord. There are people in Georgia Highlands that need the Lord. And if we do all this, we come and worship and we have all these nice things and we don't bring people to Christ, what does it matter? 
nothing, it means nothing. And as they're worshiping and praising God, they praised God right where they were at in prison. And God brought freedom to people. I believe that when we worship God right where we're at, people will be brought to freedom. When we came back from Passion this past January, I didn't feel like driving home. And, um, I went back to Shorter and I snuck in my apartment and stayed in my apartment. And Matt, and my roommate, was there and Titus. And so this is pretty freaking awesome. Matt got saved at Passion. And so as I go in, he has his notebook laid out. At least I didn't know you guys had it on top. That's awesome, too. I was there. Oh, you were in my apartment. Whatever. All right, so. Okay, so Matt has his notebook out from the notes that he took at Passion. And in big, bold letters, it was written out, best day of my life, I gave my life to God. That is the motivating force behind everything that we do. It is by that statement that you are motivated to glorify God right now. I believe, and I know a lot of y'all are probably wondering about this table, but I believe that the, the story where Paul and Silas are, are there, and they go and they have dinner with this family, and they come to the Lord together. I think it's a metaphor for community, but I think it is also a metaphor of what it is like to taste the gospel, to savor the mercy and the goodness of Jesus and so, as people, we bring people to the table. So, Matt, come to the table. And, and when I see someone go to the table, it encourages me. It makes me want to bring others to the table. And so, Kendall, will you, you come to the table? I want people to taste who Christ is. Harley, you, you'll come to the table with me? And as we bring people to the table... We can enjoy the gospel. We can enjoy who Jesus is. We can look to him together. But the important thing about this, there is always one chair. Always open. Because you'll never run out of people to bring to the table. But what's beautiful about the table is when the meal comes and when the, the bill is there and we can't afford it. It's a five-star meal, by the way. It's been paid for already. It's already been paid for. That's what the gospel is. A bill that you can't pay. It's already been paid for. So the worship team, y'all can come back. You've been invited to the table. My question to you is this. Will you RSVP and lose your plus one? Don't bring people to the table. I don't want to miss out on others coming to salvation. That is the goodness of the gospel. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. Such a good Father, we thank you.